If you'd like to uh, turn to the outline that is uh, in your camp booklet, it is on page 10. Page 10. Uh, it is a long passage. Uh, we just read uh, one section of it. And so as we go through, I'll be reading some of the other parts as well. It's actually great to be able to cover big sweeps of uh, the book of Ephesians, although we won't look at uh, every detail. Let's go to God in prayer. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for this morning, for the rest that we have had, for the fellowship we have together. We ask, Father, as we again come to hear your word, that you might open up our hearts and our ears, that you might enable us to understand, and in understanding, we may be those who are changed in our attitudes, in our hearts, so that we might, as individuals and as a church, Seek to live in honour of you. Please, Father, challenge us and encourage us through your word in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the most shocking photos that's come across the internet in the last month or two is this picture that went viral of the Syrian boy face down on the shores of the Turkish coast. I'm sure uh, most of us have seen that. As a father, it uh, it upsets me. I read a little article of the father of this boy and he was just completely distraught. Uh, The deadness, the inability to do anything to bring life back. Death is awful. Ephesians chapter 2 speaks of death. Chapter 2, verse 1, You were dead in the trespasses and sins. Not physically dead. Uh, We are still walking around in verse 2, but we are dead in our sins. We are dead spiritually, if you like dead in our trespasses and sins in which we once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, Satan, the spirit, that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Our natural state, what we are by nature, is that we are dead to God and we are those who are heading towards the destruction of God's anger, God's wrath, God's righteous judgment, hell. That's our natural state. But not only dead, we are also excluded Coming down to chapter 2 and verse 11. Remember that at one time you Gentiles, you non-Jewish, you Gentiles, in other words you pagans in the flesh, in, in your natural racial state, in your natural human state, you Gentiles in the flesh, you were called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision that the Jewish people look down on the rest of mankind. Remember, verse 12, that you were at that time separate from the Messiah, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world. You are excluded. It's hard going through customs I don't know if it's harder going into Malaysia or going back to Singapore, depending on what citizenship you have. Sometimes coming here, they forget to stamp your passport. You've got to go back around, isn't it? It's hard going through customs. But that's nothing compared with many of our the Syrian refugees these days trying to get through the borders, trying to find freedom. Imagine if you're one of those refugees, excluded. 
many, many people will not let you cross their borders. Spiritually, we, Australian, UK, Asian, Singaporean, Malaysian, we Gentiles, we are excluded. Separate from the Messiah, you know. The Messiah, the Christ, he was really coming especially for the Jews. But we had nothing on the outside of the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to God's promises to his people in the Old Testament. The Gentiles, we really had, had no hope. We had no God, no true God. Our natural state was not only dead, but we were excluded. The situation is so dire that what is needed is a complete change. Point two, a recreation in Christ Jesus. It takes nothing short of that, that miracle of bringing life to the dead, of bringing unity, bringing peace to those who are excluded. Let's take these two points one at a time. And so point 2A is really about God's work in bringing life to us who are dead. And the key verse there is chapter 2 and verse 10. Have a look at chapter 2 and verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created, notice that word, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. It takes a recreation God creating us in Christ Jesus to bring us from chapter 2, 1 to 3, from that deadness to now being alive. Recreated in Christ, God's workmanship. Let's take that first before we move on to point 2b. The passage really starts off back in chapter 1 and verse 15. Come back with me there for that reason, this reason. And because of all that has been said about predestination we saw last night, because he's writing to this church of people who've started loving other Christians, because Paul has heard about their faith, he thanks God in verse 16. And then he prays for them. And so in chapter 1, verse 17, begins this prayer of Paul. What does he pray for? He prays that the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Wisdom, may give them further revelation uh, to know God, to know him better. Verse 18, that the eyes of their heart, you know, that, that they might actually have their spiritual eyes opened, enlightened, to know what? Or well, verse 18, to know what is the hope that he has called you. More of that uh, in tonight's talk. To know something of the future. The certain future, that's what hope means, the certain future that God has called you to, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. But what we're going to concentrate on today is verse 19. Paul prays that these Christians, these Gentile Christians, may know what is the immeasurable greatness of God's power towards us who believe. Now, you can see God's power in all kinds of ways, can't you? You can step out in the um, morning sunrise and look at the sun and the beauty of creation. You can say, wow, there is God's power. Uh, you can think of you know, the sun exploding as you see these science uh, kind of documentaries. And you see, oh, there is God's power. But this power, whatever it is, it's a power that is especially towards us who believe. What is this power of God that is related to us who believe? Well, the first point he makes is that this power is according, verse 19, to the working of God's great might. In doing what? Well, verse 22-23, in God raising Jesus from the grave. It's his resurrection power. And so verse 20, that he, God, worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. See, Jesus was dead. He was really dead. 
right? The uh, remember the um, the soldier stuck the spear into his side, and water and blood came out. Some indication that he really was dead. Uh, people were surprised that he was dead. They put him in the tomb for uh, over two days, right? If he wasn't dead on the cross, he'd definitely be dead by the time he's in that cold tomb. He really was physically dead. But God raised him back to life. Lots of evidence we have in the scriptures. Uh, There was nobody there in the tomb on Easter Sunday. In other words, there's no body there. The body had resurrected. We were talking about a resurrection body. It's not just that his spirit somehow and the immortality of the soul is floated off somewhere. No, there was a resurrection of the body. Jesus the man was no longer dead. And people saw him alive. Uh, Lots of eyewitnesses. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul says, at one time 500 people saw Jesus alive subsequent to his death on the cross. It wasn't someone just having a uh, delusion or a hallucination. You don't get that with 500 people all at the same time. Real evidence that he came back to life. But not just came back to life... I mean, every now and then you hear of, uh, stories where people had died and then you know, a few days later, suddenly you know, they pop out of um, the morgue or something like that. You know, the, the doctors made a misdiagnosis or something. But Jesus came back to life no longer with his wounds, no longer with his you know, body that was hanging on the cross. He came back to life in, in a state that people can fall down before him and say, my Lord and my God. And more than that, he came back to life, notice in verse 20, to be seated at the right hand of God in the heavenly places. For 40 days after he rose from the dead, he ascended into heaven, ascended to the right hand of God. In other words, a position of power and authority. Authority over what? Verse 21, far above all rule, authority, power, dominion, above every name, above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. That is, it's not just over human authority, not just over Rome and the Caesar, it's actually over all the spiritual powers. That phrase, that rule, authority, power, dominion, is later on in, used in chapter 6 to speak of Satan and his offsiders. Jesus is now Lord over not only human authority, but angelic, uh, demonic authority. Remember in chapter 1, verse 10, we said that what God is doing is uniting everything in the whole creation under Jesus as the head. And now the big turning point has happened. Now the thing that's happened to make that future happen has now taken place. Jesus has been risen to the right hand of God. By the way, friends, that means that we don't have to be scared of uh, spirits. Now, a lot of times people, especially us as Asians, are scared of spirits. I went to one uh, church camp once in um, in Sydney where one particular family, uh, an Asian family, they said, oh, we don't like this room that we're in. So, ah. Oh, we gave you the best room. Right? What's wrong with the room? There's aircon and you know, everything works. I said, oh, no, it's, it's not good because we can just feel that there are spirits there. Oh. <laughs> if you're a Christian, you don't have to worry about that because Jesus has conquered the spirits. We don't have to worry about, you know, I've got a bad number. You know, I've got number 24 and 14. You know, I've got bad... You don't have to worry about feng shui. You don't have to worry about all those kinds of things. It's superstitious lies from Satan. Yes, we believe in Satan, but Satan knows about Jesus who has the victory. We do not have to be scared of the spirits. Jesus has won the victory. That is the resurrection power he has now come to. More than that, look at verse 22, 23. Jesus in this right hand of God has now put all things under his feet and especially his head of all things to the church. End of verse 22. Jesus is the authority over especially God's people. We are his body. Now, 
That is the basis that shows us God's immeasurable power, verse 19. But notice, remember, we said that it's God's immeasurable greatness of his power towards not just Jesus, but towards us, chapter 119, us who believe. Well, how is Jesus' resurrection, how is God's great power in rising him from death to life, what's that got to do with us who believe? Well, that's where chapter 2 comes in. So one of the problems with our Bibles is it keeps on putting chapter divisions in. And this is one of those chapters divisions where usually you start off, you know, a Bible study on chapter 2, verse 1, and you forget about chapter 1. But the two are actually linked in together. Because chapter 2, verse 1 to 3, remember, we are dead. Dead spiritually. Just like Jesus was dead. After all, he died for our sins. But God, chapter 2, verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive, death to life, together, notice this, with Christ. That is, God has shown his immense power by raising Jesus from death to life. What's that got to do with us? Well, we were dead spiritually. And now as Christ has gone from death to life, so we who believe in him are also taken from death to life on the basis of what's happened to Jesus. And so we are those who are alive, alive spiritually. Now we have that right relationship with God. This is a recreation. This is God breathing life into the deadness of our sins. There's nothing more powerful than bringing life from the dead, and especially spiritual life from spiritual death. How were we ever going to escape hell? Except Jesus who goes to hell for us and then rises to be with God. Notice, this power happens by the grace of God through our faith. Famous verse, of course, is chapter 2, verse 8, for by grace you've been saved through faith. But notice that idea of grace starts off in verse 4, chapter 2, verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even while we were dead in our sins, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. Mercy, verse 4. What's mercy? Mercy is where you do not get what you deserve. Uh, my father, uh, a couple of years ago, got caught speeding in Sydney, you know, driving his car, got caught speeding by a speeding camera. Twice. By the same camera. <laughs> ah, what was he thinking? Doesn't he learn the first time? And he lost so many points, right, of his driving license that he had to have his license cancelled for six months. And my mother doesn't drive, so, you know, it's going to be difficult. And so he went to court to try to appeal. And before the magistrate... He actually said, that, Dear sir, I, I know I'm guilty, right? Obviously, all the photos are there. <laughs> Can't get out of that. And he said, But I'm a Christian, and Jesus showed mercy to me, the sinner. <laughs> and so I'm begging for mercy. <laughs> Uh, tries to preach the gospel wherever he can, doesn't he? <laughs> and the judge basically, like you did, just laughed at him. <laughs> good try, good try. So he had to have his uh, six-month suspension. But that's what mercy would have been, right? There's no way you deserve to get out of this punishment. It's just the mercy of the court. You're at the mercy. You cannot demand the mercy. Uh, you can just, just beg. We are those who need mercy. We've been sinful. Uh, my father also, when he went to Australia, we have the unfortunate surname of Ng. It's actually a great name, but Ng is very hard to pronounce for the Caucasians. 
you know, mm, it's a very nasal sound, mm, mm, right? And so uh, everyone tried to add an I in front of it. You mean ing, right? Uh, my mother caved in for a little while. So let's change our name to ing. That would be easy for everyone. My father said, no, our surname is ing. Mm. What would he do when he tried to get people to understand uh, our surname? He said, my name is uh, Paul Ng. Two letters. N for no, G for good. That's how he defined himself. He understood the gospel, my father. We are people who are, in our very identity, not good. Right? We are sinful. We need mercy. Now, mercy is where we do not get what we deserve. We do not get the judgment we deserve. Grace is the flip side of that. Same coin, but it's the flip side. What is grace? The grace in the end of verse um, 5 and the grace in verse 8. The grace is where we get what we do not deserve. Where we get the salvation we do not deserve. Some of you have heard this illustration, but it's such a good illustration. Uh, My best illustration for grace is uh, an Australian Olympian uh, who won the gold medal in the Winter Olympics. His name is Stephen Bradbury. Uh, You think, how does an Australian win anything in the Winter Olympics? You know, they hardly have any snow. Uh, He won it in uh, speed skating. You know, speed skating, you go around like this. Pretty boring, but not as boring as the, the broom one, you know, when I get broom like Anyway, um, Winter Olympics. How did Stephen Bradbury win the Winter Olympics in speed skating? Well, it's because in the final, in the very last corner, he was coming way back, you know, 15 metres back, but in the last corner, the people coming first to fourth, well, number one fell, number two fell on top of him, number three ran into him, number four ran into him, and then at the last corner, and Stephen Bradbury just sort of skated past them all, and before he knew it, he crossed the line and won the gold medal. Now, the interesting thing is the only reason he got into that final was because in a uh, heat beforehand, exactly the same thing happened. (laughs) Now, when he came to get his uh, gold medal, uh, you know what the Americans are like when they win the gold medal. Look at me, right? (laughs) Well, when Stephen Bradbury got up on the platform and as they gave him the gold medal, what did he do? Did he go, yeah, look at me. No, as they gave him the gold medal, he went. (laughs) Friends, when we go to heaven and we're given eternal life, the crown of life, are we going to go, yes, look at me, look at all the good things I've done, I deserve this? No. We're going to go, it's nothing I have done. It is all what God has done for me. His grace. And so verse 8 makes it very clear in that famous verse. It's not your own doing. It's the gift of God. It's not a wage. You don't earn it. You don't deserve it. You cannot demand it. Not as a result of works. He says it again in verse 9. So that no one will boast. We cannot boast on judgment day of our salvation. 4 verse 10 explains it. We are his workmanship. He has made us. He has recreated us. Verse 10, created in Christ Jesus. God is the one who's done this work in us, not ourselves. Again and again, we're going to come back to that reminder that we are those who do not deserve it. We are the bad people who God has forgiven, and that is why we can be accepted by him. Some people in our world know that they're bad. I met a prisoner once in a jail, and he said to me, yeah, there's no hope for me, no way God will accept me. And then I told him about this passage, and then it dawned on him, well, if that's true, then there's a chance for me, right? But most of us are not like that. Most of us in our world, we think we are better than everybody else. We think, you know, we somehow deserve to go to heaven. 
Why? Because, because we compare ourselves with other people. We think we're not as bad as other people. And so you might have uh, you know, stolen something from you know, the, the supermarket when you were young. And you say, well, you know, at least I didn't uh, rob the place. And the robbers will say, well, at least I, I didn't have a gun when I robbed the place. And the armed robbers will say, well, at least I uh, didn't shoot anyone. <laughs> and those who did shoot them, well, at least I, I didn't kill that person. And the people who actually killed the people said, well, at least I wasn't a serial killer. And the serial killers will say, at least I didn't rape anyone. And the rapists say, well, at least I wasn't a serial rapist. And the rapists say, well, at least I wasn't a pedophile. And the pedophile says, well, at least I wasn't a terrorist. And the terrorists say, what did I do that was wrong? <laughs> we all think that we are okay, that we are better than other people. But friends, that's when we compare ourselves with other people. When we compare ourselves with God, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. We need the grace. We are saved through faith. We know what faith is? Faith is not a good work that we do. Put it another way, everybody has faith. It depends on what you have your faith in. Those who are not Christians, they have faith in themselves. That somehow they're good enough to get to heaven. Or faith in this God or that God. Or following the ways of uh, Buddha. or It's all faith themselves. But Christians are those who are saved through faith, not in ourselves, but in Jesus who died for us. It is trusting what he did, not what we do. In other words, friends, our whole eternity hangs on what Jesus has done. Now, that's quite risky, isn't it? Imagine you go to God on Judgment Day and you say, you know, yes, it's not my good works, it's not because I am a pastor, it's not because I got baptized, it's not because, it's only because of what Jesus did for me. Full stop, that, that's it. That's all I'm relying on. What if Jesus' death is not enough? It's pretty risky, isn't it? That's what faith is, is to depend on what Jesus has done, that that is sufficient and enough. But at the same time, although it's not our good works, notice the second half of verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, for good works. Good works does not save us, verse 8 and 9, but we are saved for good works. Good works is the purpose for which we are saved. In fact, God's prepared good works for us to do, to walk in them. We used to walk according to the ways of this world, chapter 2 and verse 2, according to the ways of Satan, but now we have a new walk, a new way of living. If you ever come to Sydney, uh, you should go to Bondi Beach and stay on the sand. Because when you go in, it's likely you can get eaten by a shark, right? Uh, recently, there's been quite a few uh, shark attacks, especially, you know, at the sort of dusk time when the light goes down or early in the morning. Don't go surfing then because there's been a few shark attacks. What if one day you were swimming out there and Jaws does come and almost kills you, but a life saviour comes and rescues you and puts you back on the sand? You've been saved. Out of nothing you've done. You haven't, you know, done anything trying to swim back yourself. You know, your all your swimming has just impeded the life saviour in, in, in saving you. He had to knock you out, right, in order to drag you out. When you come to, you don't say, oh, well, I've been saved. I can still see all the sharks swimming out there. Now I'm on the land. Guess what? I'm going to go back for a swim. That is stupid. God in Jesus has saved you from that awful situation so that you can live on the land and live life for him. Why do you want to go back to the old life? We've been saved for good works. That is what our recreation in Christ Jesus is about, from death to life, but not to live now in the same dead works of the past, but to live in the new way. That's the first part of our 
recreation. At one level, uh, we can see that very individually. Right? It's true, right? We are, as individuals, saved from hell and saved to live for Jesus, to live a life of godliness. But chapter 2, verse 11, through to end of chapter 2, really, to the end of chapter 3, is about that same recreation in Christ, but now seen from the angle of us together, us corporately, from the angle of us being excluded as Gentiles in the past, but now included into God's family. So point, we turn to then point 2b, one new humanity. What were we like in the past? Well, chapter 2, verse 11 to 12, as we read earlier today. We're those who were Gentiles in the flesh, separated, alienated, away from God's people, strangers to God's promise, no hope without God. But, verse 13, but now. It's the same kind of change as in chapter 2, verse 4. You were dead, but God, chapter 2, verse 4. And so now, in chapter 2, verse 11 and 12, you were excluded, verse 13, but now, in Christ Jesus. You who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. It's the same kind of recreation that God has done. Let me show you how. Well, what has happened? The blood of Christ, verse 13, has brought us Gentiles near. We who were excluded have now been brought to be at peace. Look at verse 14. For he himself, that is Jesus, is our peace. Well, peace between whom? Well, Jesus has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh, in his body, the dividing wall of hostility. There's, there used to be some dividing wall that divided God's people, the Jewish people, from the pagans, the Gentile people. Uh, there is a enmity, there's a, a, a hatred, there's an exclusion between the Jews and the Gentiles. You see it all through the Old Testament, especially the Jews and looking down on the Gentiles. And rightly, at one level, they had every right to look down. They were God's people. No one else was God's people. What was this dividing war of hostility? Well, look at verse 15. Jesus, by abolishing, it's quite strange here, by abolishing the law, the law of Moses, the law of the commandments expressed in the ordinances. That is, friends, the law of God in the Old Testament, the, the Mosaic law, the Ten Commandments and all the other laws and Leviticus, etc., they were the law that cre almost created, a defined, delineated the hostility between the Jew and Gentile. For there are lots of laws, aren't there, which are specifically to show that God's Jewish people are holy, are separate, are, are different, distinct from ah, those Gentiles. The food laws, for example. Right? Uh, you sit down with uh, some people and you're about to eat your tassel bao and, you know, ha gao sil mai, and they say, oh, sorry, I, I can't eat that, I'm a vegetarian. You're just made to feel somehow you're not holy, isn't it? Right? Now, how much so the Jewish person who says, no, I actually cannot eat pork. <laughs> I used to say, good, more pork for me. But um, you're meant to feel somehow you are unclean. See, the law of the Old Testament uh, distinguished the clean from the unclean, and they were clean and you were unclean. Jesus has come to abolish that and to make the two into one new man. In other words... All the law of God, which was there in the Old Testament, to, to separate Jew and Gentile, all the law of God, which for the Old Testament people they were meant to do to get to, to God, they were meant to do to get the blessings of the promised land, uh, in the Old Testament, uh, you had to do the Ten Commandments in order to stay in God's blessing. Now Jesus has done away with. Because guess what? Even for the Jews, even for the Jewish people, they couldn't do God's law enough to stay in the God's blessing. 
You, you cannot try to do good works to, to get to heaven. The whole Jewish nation was a deliberate failed example that God used to show us that it's not by good works we get to heaven. No, no, what God is doing now is that in Christ, he may look at verse 15, he might create in himself, notice the word creation. This is a new creation we're talking about. In himself, one new man, one new humanity in place of the two. There's no longer people defined as whether they're Jewish or Gentile. Rather, they are new humanity. It's called Christian. A Christ humanity. And so, verse 15, Jesus makes peace. Peace between who? Well, verse 16, reconciling us both to God. Peace between humanity, fallen humanity, and God. And verse 17, he preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. That is, both Jew and Gentile needed peace with God. Verse 18, through him, through Jesus, we both, Jew and Gentile, have our access in one spirit to God the Father. That is, this is peace both horizontally and vertically. Vertically with God, because now when Jesus has died by his blood, we can be forgiven. All of us on the same basis. We get to God not because some of us are good, some of us obey the law, and some of us haven't. No, we all fail. We get to God because of Jesus' death on our behalf. God considers me okay with him because of Jesus' death. And if God considers why okay with him because of Jesus' death, then there is no reason why, why and I should not consider each other okay with each other. If God accepts him, I should accept him. If God accepts me, then he should accept me. It's no longer the basis of what we do, what we perform, or our race, or, or anything. And so in coming to God, bridging that gap, the horizontal gap between each other is bridged. Now that happens to us individually, but the point here is it happens to, to whole races of people, to whole nations of people. And so the conclusion comes in verse 19, so then... You are no longer, you Gentiles are no longer, now that you are Christians, you're no longer strangers and aliens. Uh, it's not talking about green men kind of aliens, all right? Too much Star Wars is no good. Uh, it's not about those kind of aliens. It's about an alien like in the Old Testament. You know, the aliens who are not Jewish, uh, the foreigners. You're no longer strangers and aliens like that. Instead... You are fellow citizens. Remember back in chapter 2 and verse 12, notice we were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. No citizenship in God's people. But now, verse 19, we have fellow citizens with the saints. Who are the saints? Uh, the Roman Catholics think the saints are special holy people who have died and somehow are more holy and somehow they help us go to God. You, know, you pray to the saints and then they take your prayer and they pray to God. And, um, and we know as Protestants, okay, they are not, they're not really the saints in the Bible. The usual line is then, um, everybody, all Christians are saints. But I think in the book of Ephesians and Colossians especially, the saints, they're not the you know, Roman Catholic kind of people uh, you know, who have sources behind their head you know, on stained glass windows, uh, they're not those kind of saints, but neither are they, I don't think, all Christians. Rather, I think it makes a lot more sense in the passage to see that these saints are the first century Jewish Christians. Not the Jews, right, because Jews mostly are not Christian, but the Jewish Christians, but not Jewish Christians today, but the first century Jewish Christians. That is, what's happening here in the Bible, in the New Testament, is the turning of the ages, where the gospel is not just for the Jewish people, but now equally on the same footing for the Gentiles as well. And so, 
If in chapter 2, verse 12, we were alienated from Israel, now, chapter 2, verse 19, it really makes sense, doesn't it? You're no longer aliens. You are now fellow citizens with the Jewish Christians. In other words, you get on the same basis, you get in on the same basis as they did. Uh, it's like going back to Singapore, you know, going across the causeway, and it's going to take me longer to get through because I'm an Australian citizen. I'm alienated from Singapore. Right? You guys can just, you know, do your big, big pass and go through. But just say somehow, as I'm coming through, I'm granted Singapore citizenship as well as Australian citizenship. I can have double citizenship or something like that, right? And I can go straight through. Oh, I think it's a great privilege. I am a fellow citizen with you guys. But more than that, this is not just sort of technical legal citizenship language. Notice the next phrase in chapter 2 and verse 19. We are members of the household of God. You're in the family. It's like as I go back across the causeway, not only now do I have a new passport, Singapore passport, but Prime Minister Lee happens to be there and he adopts me into his family. I am now a Joshua Lee. Forget that NG kind of name, right? I'm Lee now, right? Joshua Lee, I'm in the family. And so I go into Singapore, I can go straight into the Parliament House or wherever he stays, right? Through all the guards and I just go in and rest on the lounge, hey, can you get me a drink? And I'm in the family. Now to be in the Lee family, it's good, isn't it? Right, the whole country is your company, yeah? No, no, um, you, you, you got everything going for you. We are those who are now not just citizens in God's people. We are family in God's household. He is our father. He's our dad. What a privilege it is. We are no longer outsiders. But point three, we are citizens in the family. And so now we start talking about point three then, the Christ-centered community. For when you talk about citizenship of a country or being a member of the family, it's not just you as an individual. Being a Christian is not just about you as an individual. It's about you coming to God but having peace, having relationship, positive relationship with other people who are also saved as you are. And so we are those who are part of the church. The way the church is described in verse 19 to 22 of chapter 2 is in terms of the image of a building. You see it there in verse 20. You're members of the household of God, that, that kind of household, and then he sort of switches his, his metaphor to, to a building metaphor, a house as it were. Verse 20, you're built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Apostles, New Testament apostles, prophets, I think there's the New Testament prophets. Uh, these are the people who gave us the gospel, who preached us the gospel. Uh, how it comes down to us now, it's in terms of uh, the New Testament at least. right? Because the apostles and prophets, they wrote it down, and he's, uh, the church is built on their foundation, the foundation of, of the Bible. Christ Jesus, verse 20, himself being the cornerstone. In those days, the architects, they have to have especially put four stones that will shape the whole building, assuming it's a sort of a rectangle kind of building. You get those four stones, those cornerstones wrong, and the whole thing will be skewed. Jesus is not only the foundation, but a key foundation. And then what happens in this building? Verse 21, the whole structure is joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Notice it's an ongoing process. It's being built, being joined together. It's growing. It's not finished. You know, it's like you walk past a building site and you know, it says men at work. You, you, all the scaffolding is still there. It's not finished yet as a building. And what kind of building is it? It is a temple in the Lord. It's a holy temple in the Lord. The temple in the Old Testament is where God met his people. 
The church is described here in temple language. Why? Because verse 22, in Christ you're being built together in a dwelling place, into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. God's Spirit, God himself by his Spirit dwells amongst us. In other words, we are his building, that he is, that's where we meet him. Now, a few very important things here in terms of our Christ-centered community. One, this church, this temple is not yet finished. You know, sometimes people go what they call church hopping. Right? They go from one church to another, try to look for a church that's just right for them. By which they mean it has a good Sunday school for their kids. You know, the pastor has good jokes. It's uh, you know, it's got cool uh, surroundings. Hopefully, in a big shopping centre, it uh, hasn't got someone who has a pastor's wife who takes off of your money. It um, oh, you look for all the right things, okay, for for this church, friends. No church in this world is perfect because. Our church is still growing, right? Uh, my father said to me, I remember this from when I was young, he said, Joshua, don't look for the perfect church. If you ever find the perfect church, make sure you don't go there. <laughs> Why? Because you'll wreck it up. <laughs> it's true, isn't it? We are not perfect as individuals. There's no such, we are growing together, growing in godliness, growing in holiness, but not yet Perfect. That's the simple first point. Second point is that as this church, as this building, we are those who is a temple building. Notice it's the people who are the temple. Right? Verse 19, you are no longer, but you are those on which is built on this foundation, and you are being joined together, and you are growing into a holy temple. It is not the building itself that is the key. We are the building. We, the people, are the building. It's important that the building doesn't matter. I mean, I know the church who meets in the kindergarten. The building really doesn't matter. (laughs) Back in church, in my uh, church in, in Australia, we meet at the university. Right, in lecture halls where they used to teach physics and, you know, during the week, and then we have church. There's no stained glass windows. In fact, there's no windows. (laughs) There's no cross at the front. And I don't deliberately bring in a cross at the front. But when we meet together as God's people, that crowd is different from during the week. Because during the week they meet together for physics. But now we meet together because we're God's people and God by his spirit dwells amongst us. It is us not the building that is important. Thirdly, it is called a temple. And so the idea of worship is there. But very important to note that this worship is worship together. Right, Romans chapter 12, 1 to 2, we can worship God all our life, isn't it? Our life is a, a living sacrifice. As Christians, we worship 24-7. What is different about church is that we worship together. There are lots of things you can do at church, but you cannot do as an individual. And it's all the things that are done together. And so you don't go to church in order to worship God as an individual, but you go to church in order to worship God Together, and the big emphasis is the togetherness of our worship. At home, you can read the Bible yourself. You can even listen to sermons, no, download. You can even give money, you know, internet uh, transfer. Uh, you can even sing. Some of you sing better in the shower by yourself than you do at church, right? You can do all kinds of things. But the difference is, when you come together as church, you do it together with other people who are bodily there where you can serve them, you can see them, you can you know, touch them, you can pat them on the back, you can... There's people together. 
And so the worship we do at church is both simultaneously vertical and horizontal. It's like Ultraman, right? Uh, both vertical and horizontal. There's everything we do at church is about worship to God, but it's also at the same time serving, fellowship, edifying one another. The two are all wrapped up together. Because, you know, as I set up the mics and things like that, I'm doing it for other people, aren't I? But at the same time, I'm doing it because of my love for God. Uh, the two other one thing. Uh, when we sing, right, later on in Ephesians chapter 5, it talks about us singing at church. But the singing is not just us praising God. The singing is also listening to God's word being taught to us. Because hopefully the words that we sing are, are the words of scripture, are the words of the gospel. But also we sing to one another. Right? And so worship is responding to God's word to us, thanking him, but thanking him not just as an individual, but together. We don't come to church to do our own quiet time before God. I don't really mind if you come to church and you be quiet and you just, you know, make sure you're thinking and working out, you know, reminding yourself what you're doing there. But it's actually better when you come to church, not just to sit by yourself and be quiet, but actually come to church and encourage one another, and talk to one another. In some churches I know, not your one, but in other churches, uh, sort of more traditional Anglican churches, you can go into the church and actually not talk to the person sitting next to you. And you can be pretty guaranteed they won't talk to you either. But it's all okay according to them because they have come to worship God. All these individuals come in and they're all worshipping God and they've got nothing to do with each other. That's really not, not church. Church is about community, it's about caring for one another. A friend who um, came back from Australia to Singapore and he found it hard to get into the church that he was with. He was sort of a newcomer and as he came along to church, no one talked to him. So he wrote to us and said, what do we do? And so we wrote back to him saying, well, you've got to actually take the initiative and start to talk to people. Pray about it and look for people to talk to. A few months later, he wrote back to us. He said, hey, it's worked. I go to church and I start talking to my neighbours. I've been praying for them and then talking to them. Only he spelt the word pray wrong. He spelled it P-R-E-Y. <laughs> Which is what we need to do, isn't it? <laughs> but when we come to church, it's about serving other people, and as we serve other people, we actually are those who are worshipping God. It is the temple idea, but a togetherness in the temple idea. Two final points. Chapter 3 we won't have too much time for, except for one little thing which uh, usually we, we don't pay attention to. And that's chapter two, uh, 3 there and verse 10. In verse uh, 1 to 9 or so of chapter 3, Paul is talking about his role, especially as the apostle, to reveal the gospel, especially to the Gentiles. We get included in. But chapter 3 verse 10 speaks about this. Pick it up from verse 9. Uh, I'm preaching the gospel to you to bring to light what every, for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages, verse 9, hidden in God who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now, right now already, be made known to the rulers and authorities and in the heavenly places. This was according to his eternal purpose that is realized in Christ, Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. The boldness, the confidence, our faith in him, that's all about people coming to God, being accepted by God. But we, we say it's not just individuals, it's us together. Uh, verse 11, God's eternal purpose, right? But what we talked about yesterday, God's predestination. But notice verse 10. The church now is showing God's great wisdom to the heavenly, the spiritual, uh, even the spiritual 
evil beings, a devil and his mates. That is the very being of the church is now God's great revelation, God's great trophy of his victory over the spiritual beings. The church shows God's great wisdom, how in the past he he only chose the Jews, but he, he always meant that the Jews, through the Jews, to bring Jesus, the great Jew, and through Jesus to bring all the people of the nations back to him. And through Jesus now, you don't have to become Jewish first in order to get to God, which is what it was in the Old Testament, but now you can be Christian. And the Jew can't just rely on his being a Jew, he has to be Christian. And so they are Christians who are those who can come to God and say, the church is God's great trophy. On my piano at home, I've got a, um, a, a Porsche, a car, a model car that I made for my wife when she turned 21. We were just dating at that time. And um, my wife said to uh, her friends, oh, my boyfriend gave me a Porsche. <laughs> and, oh, wow, what did your parents say, you know? Uh, anyway, I gave her this Porsche, and uh, the front number plate has her initials, K-E, you know, O-21 for 21st birthday. On the back windscreen, I put a big uh, sticker that said, I love Josh. And um, there, there it's, it's actually sitting in the middle of our lounge room on the piano. There's my great trophy. Right, of everyone comes in and says, Oh, what's that? And oh, they have a little laugh. And the church is God's great trophy of victory to show the angelic and evil angels that Jesus has won. And he's not won by himself, Jesus has won, and in his victory, he has gathered his people, the church. The very existence of us here today. Gentiles, together. You know, Satan looks on our meeting and he knows he's been defeated. Because the very existence of our being here as church shows that Jesus has risen from the dead. That is how important church is in the great scheme of God. We are his great trophy of victory. And so... We have spoken yesterday of Christ-centred history and it's only when we understand Christ-centred history, the whole span of what God is doing in Jesus, then we can understand Christ-centred community. For Jesus has saved us to be his people, not individually but corporately as a temple of God in which the Spirit dwells. Friends, that makes church very important. That makes our relationship with each other very important. Jesus died so that the church can be this great trophy. God had planned it from the very beginning for this to happen. And this is the great trophy that indicates that one day we will be those who is under Jesus and will have the final inheritance in heaven. It's what God has been planning all along. It's a great privilege to be part of God's purpose. But it means, therefore, we need to make it a priority in our life. Church is not just the little thing we do, you know, to get a little tick, oh yes, I'm Christian. Church is not the thing I do with my leftover bits of life and energy. Church is what life is about, as we are saved by God's people. Now, we'll see tonight that it's not just for Christians, that part of building this church is to reach out to those who are not yet Christians. This is what the whole of God's plan has been heading towards. Do you see that that is your purpose in life? 
Do you see that privilege? Where is our priority in life? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for Jesus and the church that he now heads. We thank you that we can be part of this. We thank you that we who were dead, that you've recreated us to life. We thank you that we who were excluded, who were outside your people, can now be included on the same basis, first class, as your people. We do pray, Father, that we would understand this power you have exerted in Jesus, that we'll see the great privilege of being under your mercy and grace, that we'll see the great privilege of us being able to worship together as we gather. And so we pray, Father, that we might not only understand what we do in church, but see that what we do in church is an essential and key part of what you are doing in all of history. And so we do pray, Father, that we might align our lives up in line with your plans and purposes. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.